It was three o'clock in the morning, and uh, we were sound asleep, and there came a pounding, not on the front door, but on our window. And we both woke up, uh, went to the window, and I said, come round to the front of the house. There was a young man there. He was a member of my church. Uh, at the time, I was the pastor of the Warunga Church, which was a large church on the north shore of Sydney in a beautiful, wonderful area. The church had a large membership of which I suppose six or seven hundred were young people. And when I opened the front door, there was this young man who was agitated, very nervous, and exhausted. I took him into the kitchen. We sat down at the kitchen table. I said, what's your problem? He said, I, I just can't get it together. I said, what can't you get together? He said, I'm taught, I believe it's in the Bible, that I must be perfect. He said, I've read other writings and I have been attending all sorts of meetings. I've been told that unless I'm perfect, I'm going to be lost. So I talked to him about not the good advice, but the good news. He said, no, you're making it too simple. You must be, you must be an apostate minister. I've been warned about people like you. He said, you're making it too simple. He said, I can't believe it. And so after I prayed with him, he got up and he left the house. The next day they came for him. He was committed to an institution for the insane. His mind snapped during the spiritual struggle to find peace with God. That's not a unique story. Not unique. I ran a campaign in the city of Melbourne, which is the second city of Australia. This young man did not come to my meetings, but I knew of him. This young man fell in with a company of people who were tremendously earnest and sincere, and they taught what is called by theologians the doctrine of sinless perfectionism. Oh, it sounds a great idea. A great idea, he was taught, unless you can become as sinless in the flesh as Jesus was sinless in the flesh, you're going to be damned during the time of the judgment. This young man was an earnest young man, went to church, went to Sabbath school, went to our church school. But the load became so great, he said, I have tried so hard, but I am not sinless. And because he was an honest young man and felt that he was displeasing God, he went and got in his father's car in the garage and turned on the motor car and went to sleep. They found his body in the morning, a victim of the doctrine of sinless perfectionism. Not unique to any one church. Taught by the Church of the Middle Ages, taught by the great scholars of the church, taught by the Jesuits, taught by a multitude of people today in all different types of churches. When I was running the campaign in the city of, of Melbourne, an old lady at the Nutterwadding Retirement Village asked to see me, a pastor's wife. He had passed away, but she had been a pastor's wife and she had been a spiritual leader in the church, and she came to me and she said, Pastor Carter, I have confidence in you because I've heard you preach the good old message. And she said, I want you to baptize me 
just before I die. I said, why should I baptize you before I die? She said, because the baptism will wash away my sins and if I can hold on long enough, I won't sin and then I'll be saved. Otherwise, if I sin, I will be lost. A pastor's wife. When I was a boy at Avondale College, when I was 17 years of age, I came under the influence of a person who must remain, I think, anonymous. His name, first name was Robert. He was dynamic, he was charismatic, he was a good preacher, he had an influence over most of us who were so young and green and illiterate as far as the Word of God is concerned. And he taught that if you're not absolutely sinless as Jesus was sinless, when probation closes, you're going to be cast into outer darkness and burn for all eternity. And so, as a young man, I set out with a passion to reach sinlessness. And I had many conflicting emotions, which were not caused, I believe, by my glands, but they were caused by my emotional, spiritual feelings. I had feelings of despair, and then I had feelings of superiority, because at some times I thought I really was attaining. And at other times, when I was honest with myself, I knew that I was simply a sinner. My struggle was not unique, I discovered. It was not a new experience. Martin Luther used to beat his back and starve his body, hoping that somehow he could earn the mercy of God through his attainment. Because he did not understand that righteousness is not through attainment, but through atonement which is the theme of today's sermon. You say, but everybody today in the church is perfectly plain on this subject. I want to tell you from my experience, the vast majority of people that I have met in the church are, are completely in a daze as far as this truth is concerned. And today I want to make it plain how a person is saved. Some people say, that the most important book in the Bible is the book of Romans, and the most important chapter in the book of Romans is Romans chapter 3. I want to promise you something today, that if you, if you will give me your ears today, and give me your attention, and if you will concentrate under the power of the Holy Spirit today, this day God will open to you the gates of paradise. Because today we are going to notice what Tyndale called the good, glad, and merry tidings that makes a man's heart to sing for joy and his feet to dance. What is my methodology? I want to read to you from my hero, and that is John Wesley. Since the Apostle Paul, the world has seen some great preachers, Martin Luther, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, John Wesley. John Wesley, the man who raised up the Methodist Church. I want to say this to all my viewers watching on 3ABN and other television stations. Listen to me carefully. If you can't get it out of the Bible, it doesn't really matter. Did you hear this? My authority is the Bible and the Bible alone. 
Did you hear this? I want to quote somebody whom we love in this church. Alan White said, The words of the Bible and the Bible alone ought to be heard from our pulpits. And so if you go along to church and if you hear a preacher getting up and he's quoting everybody except the Bible writers, then you will know, my friend, that he is on the wrong track. The words of the Bible and the Bible alone, I am a Protestant through and through, and I believe that the Bible is the infallible source of truth. Let me say it plain. Let me quote you from my hero, John Wesley, in the preface to his 44 sermons. He said, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. Now, my friend, the reason why so many people who go to church, the reason so many are confused on the subject of righteousness by faith is because they're tapeworms. They just listen to tapes. Or they read this church authority or this church father, but they do not go to the source of truth, and that is the Bible. And there's a reason for this. I can remember one of the elders of one of my churches in Australia saying to me when I was giving a series on the book of Romans, he said, I wish we didn't have the, the book of Romans in the Bible. I said, Peter, why would you say a thing like this? He said, it is so difficult to read. And he said, it teaches things that apparently we don't believe in. He said, in fact, when I read this book, I discover that there are ideas there that contradict my ideas that I have been taught in church. And he said, obviously, the book is wrong. He said, it would be better if there were no such book in the Bible. What Peter desperately needed to do was get down on his knees and pray that God would enlighten himself, that, pray, that God would enlighten his darkened mind. There's something else I want to say. The hardest things in life to attain are the most valuable. That which is easy to attain is not worth much. One man said these words, the prize and the price are equal. The prize and the price are equal. If you cannot sit down and study the book of Romans and become utterly intelligent concerning terms like justification and all of those great theological terms, unless you can grasp those words and come to understand those words, then my friend, you're missing out on the greatest theme in all Holy Scripture. And so I say this to you. Hear me for a moment. In this church, I'm not here primarily to tell you funny stories. I've just about run out of my store. I'm not here to entertain you. I'm not here to amuse you. And I'm not here to make you think that I'm a great person or a great preacher. I'm here to get you to heaven. Amen. That is the purpose I'm here. I'm not here to please you. Personally, I would be glad if you liked me, but if you don't, I don't care. 
because it is not my duty to make you like me. It is my duty to teach you, to teach you the way to heaven and to get you saved. And then that will be reward enough for me. Let me give you a summary of Romans. Romans 1, we noticed two weeks ago, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, are lost and under the wrath of God. Romans 2 last week, the religionists of Paul's day, lost and under the wrath of God. Now please turn to Romans chapter 3 and verse 1 and 2, and we will notice every verse in this great chapter. Romans chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2. Because in Romans chapter 2, Paul shows that the greatest religionists of his day, the Jewish people, were under the wrath of God because even though they made a great profession, they did not keep the law of God. And so, Romans 3, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way, first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. You see, in Romans 2, he says... Even the people who profess to believe the word of God are under the wrath of God because they don't obey the word of God. And so people would say, what sense is there then in going to church? What is the sense in being a Jew? What is the sense, what value is there in being a Jew? And he says, much in every way, because the Jews had the word of God. God gave to the Jewish people the oracles of salvation. He gave them the word of God. He gave them the law of God. He gave them the truth of salvation. Jesus said to the woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. Almost, with one possible exception, all the writers of the Bible, with the possible exception of St. Luke, everyone was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. The Virgin Mary was a Jew. And the book we hold in our hands today is a Jewish book. Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews and the Messiah came through the Jewish people. And so there was tremendous advantage in having the word of God and in being a Jew because the Jews were given the truth of God. Notice Romans chapter 3 and verse 3, the next verse. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Because the vast majority of the professed people of God did not have faith, and because they rejected the Messiah, will their faithlessness bring to naught the faithfulness of God? Verse 4 says, Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Paul says, even if every person in the world is a liar, God is still true. Even if every person in the world is a flake, even if every person cannot be depended upon, even if the church is faithless, the Bible says God is faithful. In a sea of uncertainty, God is certain. We live in Los Angeles in one of the most uncertain parts of the world. We live in an era of tremendous emotional instability all around the world, but particularly in this part of the world. And people say to me time after time, on whom can I depend because so many people let me down? I say, let God be true. You can depend upon God. 
God is the great faithful God who never, never, never fails. And when everybody else fails, my friend, you can have faith and trust in God. And God is our salvation. Verse 5 and onwards, 5 to 8. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. Let me comment on this, if you don't mind. After Paul preached the gospel of God's grace, the Judaizers or the legalists in the church said, Paul is making it too easy to be saved. Paul says, where sin did abound, Grace did much more abound. Therefore, the legalists and the Pharisees in the church said, Paul is saying, well, if where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, the logical thing to do is to have more sin. So you better all sin more. And if you sin more, then there'll be more grace. And so they were saying that the Apostle Paul was teaching a cheap sort of grace. Because Paul was saying that where sin abounds, there is mercy overflowing full and free. Now listen very carefully. Unless that question is being asked by legalists in the church, the gospel is not being preached. I've discovered when I preach this gospel, when I preach it on television, when I preach it in North America, the legalists, the Pharisees will call up on the telephone and they'll say, John Carter is preaching heresy, and if you believe what he is preaching, you will find it more easy to sin. He is saying that the law of God is unimportant. Listen to me. If that question is not being raised in the church, it is because the true gospel is not being preached. Whenever the true gospel is being preached, the legalists in the church will become afraid, and they'll cry out, heresy. And so, the gospel I'm preaching today is a gospel for the needy sinner. A gospel that says, even though you have broken the law of God, there is mercy at the foot of the cross. And because of this gospel, the Apostle Paul was hated even by people living in the church. Look at verses 9 to 18 of Romans Chapter 3, dear people. Romans chapter 3, 19, 9 to 18. Verses 9 to 18. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Better than whom? The Gentiles. Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Now, I'm going to ask you to pardon me because I know this is not popular sort of preaching. I know this. I know I could get a bigger crowd of people, I think, if I were to tell them funny stories. 
but I don't want to be a preacher who's telling people funny stories because going to hell is not really a laughing matter. I have read through Romans 1 and I've said to Beverly, how does a person make this a little bit lighter? You can't. How does one make Romans 2 a little bit lighter that says that the world of the church person is corrupt also? How, how do you make that light? How do you get church people laughing their heads off about that? Tell me. And then I get into Romans 3 and it says, we're no better, the people in the church are no better than the people down on Hollywood Boulevard. How do you make that funny? And he says, we have concluded that we're not better and that the whole world is under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. How does the man standing outside that great auditorium where I preached in Minneapolis in 1998 at the General Conference session, the North American Division session, how does he read that text? You know what, I don't think he did read that text because he was standing out there and passing out papers to the people and as the people came along, the paper said, unless you become sinless like I am, you're not going to be saved. I went up to him, it was snowing heavily, and I said to him, he had a little group there, I said, are you sinless? He said, yes, I'm sinless. I said, is there anybody else sinless here? He said, my, my friend here, he's sinless too. What about the rest here? He said, well, no, they're like you. He said, they haven't got to it yet, but he said, we're sinless. And he said, nobody else. Well, he said, there's going to be a people in the last days and they're going to be like me. I wish his wife had been there. I would have said, is that man you're married to, is he sinless? Is he always patient? Is he never late for an appointment? Does he love his neighbor as himself when the neighbor mows the lawn Sunday morning at 6 o'clock in the morning? Does he love his neighbor as himself? Has he got perfect faith? Does not for one moment, does he ever feel down? You know what he was suffering from? Super spiritual delusion. It's Phariseeism. The Bible says there's no one righteous. No one in this church is righteous. None of us. This preacher is not righteous. I am a sinner standing before you, but a sinner saved by grace. So he says, there's none righteous. No, not one. There is no one who understands. That means fully. There is no one who seeks God. That means completely. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I say, my friend, what a statement. And this is talking about the human race. And this is talking, my friend, not only about the world of the Gentiles. It is talking about the world of religious people and the Bible says none righteous here is an article from the San Diego 
Union Tribune of this week. I was, Beverly and I were down in San Diego this week, and she picked up a copy of the Union Tribune. And this is the editorial. It says, Hearts of Darkness, Fabric of America Slowly Unraveling. No sooner had FBI agents closed in on the cabin of Ted Kaczynski than vending stands sprouted up all over rural, rural Montana selling t-shirts, baseball caps, wood carvings, and other tacky merchandise bearing the unsavory likeness of the suspected Unabomber. The 20 or more businesses that are marketing Unabomber keepsakes uh, apparently are untroubled that they are profiting from the notoriety of an unrepentant criminal who was accused of killing or maiming at least a dozen innocent Americans over the past two decades. If this were not shameless enough, a group of computer geeks with a decidedly distasteful sense of humor has founded the Unabomber Political Action Committee. Its purpose is to promote Kaczynski for the presidency. The Unabomber is the only candidate addressing the issue, says Chris Corder, chief organizer of Unipark. He urges the 500 daily visitors to his computer website to write in the alleged killer's name on the November ballot. The Unabomber's sudden and undeserved cult figure status lays bare America's heart of darkness that so many feel so little recrimination about celebrating the deeds of a terrorist suggests that virtue is losing its value in our modern society. There is none righteous, no, not one. And these people who are doing this, I guess they're singing in the choir. Church, every weekend, singing in the choir. If Unabomber mania were a sick aberration, it might be less troubling, but Kaczynski is just the latest radical chick killer to receive more notoriety than if he'd won a Nobel Prize. Charles Manson, the first celebrity killer to be made the subject of a made-for-TV movie, had named for him an entire line of clothing, including ladies, nighties, and children's wear, that was all the rage in San Francisco's bohemian boutiques. And child killer John Paul Garcia's clown paintings were displayed in a one-man art show. If we celebrate killers, what bounds of decency and morality are left? This helps explain why a pop star like Madonna could proudly proclaim to the world that she is having a baby out of wedlock. How can people reproach her for not bothering to marry the father of her baby when they blithely accept that merchants are selling Unabomber sweatshirts? That's the same kind of defense offered by the so-called gangster rappers when critics take them to task for their violent, uh, vulgar, dirty lyrics that attack women, say dreadful things about women and encourage male beasts to rape women. Turn on your radio, you can hear this stuff. How is it that Senator Bob Dole and other politicians can complain about their music they say while saying little, if anything, about the 20,000 or so real-life murders that occur year by year in this country? There is no national campaign to stop this carnage. And in the most sensational murder cases, we make celebrities out of the killers. Is this getting close to Los Angeles? Mm-hmm. 
when merchants feel no shame about cashing in on the infamy of killers like the Unabomber, we move that much closer to a society where there are no standards of decency and tastefulness that may not be breached. Some view this as an, ex as an expansion of free expression, but most reasonable-minded people see it as a decline of American values. Uh, the latest, I think it was Time or Newsweek, came out with a statement right over the front of it, whatever happened to decent manners? And the magazine is entitled In Your Face. It says that today people no longer respect each other. There is no respect. Why do people no longer respect each other? Why are people specialists in being rude? There's no fear of God before their eyes. If you don't fear God, you won't respect man made in the image of God. So the Bible says, there is none righteous. Let me say this to you. The first step in becoming a Christian is to say, I'm a sinner. Here I am, I'm a sinner. Why is it then that in this society, most of us here find it almost impossible to apologize? Why is it that I've had people come to me in this church and say, my partner, my husband, my wife can never apologize. Is that person a church member? Yes. But he cannot apologize because he thinks it will lower his manhood. He comes from a culture where he can't apologize. Then he ought to know he can't go to heaven. The movies, the big strong man says, I don't apologize. He put himself outside of the kingdom of God. When did you last apologize? If you can't apologize, it's because you haven't yet come to Christ. The first, am I getting close to some of you here today? Am I getting close to some of you here today? Am I getting close to all of you here today? This is a society that cannot apologize because of its self-righteousness. But the Bible says the first step in becoming a Christian is to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Lord, forgive me. When this gets into your soul, you won't be a critic. You won't be going around criticizing other people and pulling other people down and acting as though you are an infallible source of truth because you'll know that you've got nothing to boast about and that salvation only comes by the grace of God. Read on. 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. That's all of us. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. How can the law save? How can the law save me? I ask you. It can't. What does the law do? It says you're a sinner. Hmm. I lived in a farming district when I was a young pastor in Australia at a place called Mawulambara, where in those days they used to cut the sugar cane by hand. First they would set the sugarcane fields on fire to get rid of the snakes, the taipangs. Burn out the snakes. And then those men would go in wearing just a pair of shorts and a big knife. But the sugarcane had been covered with the sweet sap, the sugar running out, covered with blackness. And those men who came out of that cane 
were absolutely black all over. And every house had an outhouse, not just a toilet, but an outhouse with a shower and a mirror. And the man would look in the mirror, but the mirror didn't make him clean. He needed to go to the shower. The mirror is the law of God. It doesn't make me clean. It says there is a fountain filled with blood. You can never be saved by your own works. You can never be saved by obedience to the law of God because the law of God says we're guilty. And I want today that the Spirit of God will come into this church and every person here is going to say, I am guilty before God and cry out for the mercy of God. Amen. That's the hope of this church service today. Mercy. I'm here to preach mercy. And if you say, I'm a good church member, you need it more than anybody else because the fires of hell are being stoked already for you. As I go on, I'll get stronger. Verse 21, But now, after this dreadful bad news, but now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says fall short and fall short is present continuous. Every person here in this church is falling short of the glory of God. We have sinned in the past, but we're falling short today. Every one of us is not as good as we could be or would be or should be. There are none of us here today who are perfect people who are keeping the law of God. We fall short. Every one of us. You say, I've never heard anything like it. That's because you haven't been reading your Bible. We fall short of the glory of God, but there's a righteousness apart from the law. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, declared righteous, freely by His grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood, he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. If Romans 3 is the most important chapter in the most important book, then these verses are the most important verses in the Bible. It says... God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement so that I can be justified. Do not confuse the meaning of justification. The word justify is the Greek word that does not mean to make righteous. It means to declare that the unrighteous is righteous because of what Jesus did on the cross. What did he do on the cross? I preached a sermon like this in my great church at Wurrunga. I wondered how will I, I was going to do it today, but this is not our church and I didn't want to have an accident. 
Let me tell you what I did. I'll describe it to you. I wanted it to get into the heads of the people, into the hearts of the people. I wanted to shock them out of their churchiness and their complacency and their denominationalism. And so I purchased, or Beverly purchased, a beautiful bride doll. You have them here, don't you? A bride doll. Beautiful. A doll. You know what I'm talking about? Dressed up as a bride. In those days, I had a Volvo car, and I used to change the oil myself to make sure it was done properly. <laughs> and so I had collected over the months the filthiest gunk that you could imagine. In fact, you'd think it had come from Norm Matico's Mercedes. <laughs> he has got a Mercedes that has done 600,000 miles. The oil has never been changed. What an argument for grace. I took this filthy oil and I stood in front of this illustrious educated audience where I had 46 elders and 25 shepherdesses with a great choir and I took the doll and I poured the sump oil over the doll and it ran into the hair and down into the eyes and the people gasped. One lady said to me after the service, wasn't that an awful thing to do? I said, yes it was. Yes it was. And that's an illustration of what God did to Jesus on the cross. He took the sin of the world. He took our lust. He took our self-righteousness. He took our judgmental attitudes. He took our pride. He took our hate. He took our racism. He took our quotas. He took all of the gunk, all of the filth, and poured it upon him and you know sin. The Son of God cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have asked audiences around the world this question. Did God punish Jesus? And they say, Oh, no, no. Why would he punish Jesus? No idea, you see. Walking in darkness. Of course he punished Jesus. If Jesus wasn't punished, then you're going to get it. You hear that? If Jesus wasn't punished, you're going to get it because God is just. The cross proves the justice of God. The sinner must be punished. The law must be upheld. And on the cross, he goes to the gates of hell and bears the sin of the world. So that through faith in him I can be declared righteous and stand in the sight of a holy God like Christ himself. Say by grace, mine today if I believe it. But multitudes will perish outside the kingdom of God because of their self-righteousness and their Pharisaism and their denominationalism. That's why we find it so hard to say I'm sorry. I was reading a book some time ago about what happened to some of the soldiers in the North Korean War. The communists got them and to break them. This is not to, well if it offends you that may be good. 
Some of us have got a Christianity which is this thick. We've never, ever examined the issues. That's why we have churches that are torn apart and people fighting. Why? Because of pride, arrogance. Because I was not made the head elder this year, therefore I'm going home. No idea of the Bible truth. Oh, I'm not going to serve in the church because somebody was nasty to me. I'm going home. No idea, you see. Walking in darkness, never been to Christ. A religion that must make the angels weep. In North Korea, they got these great big vats. Fill them with human waste. What they would do with our troops would be take them, beat them up, and when they were gasping, <gasps> push them in. Hold them under. Take them out and say, now, what do you think of Marxi Tang? What do you think of communism? Hold them under. The filth. God the Father to God the Son and held him under. He felt it. He felt it. He felt it. He felt the guilt. He felt the shame. He was hanging naked on the cross, maybe with a loincloth. He felt the shame. He felt the despair. He felt the doom of the damned. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He couldn't see through the portals of the tomb. He did this because there was no other way God had to be just. God punished him for my sin in which he had no share that I might receive his righteousness in which I have no share. The cross tells me he's just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. I am a sinner but I'm looking to Christ and I'm not condemned. Neither are you. Verse 27, where then is boasting? <laughs> where is boasting? <laughs> Doesn't it make you laugh? Where's boasting? Some nitwit comes along and says, look at me, look at my attainments. I can be the judge of the church. I've attained. Where is boasting? It is excluded on, one on what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith not at all rather we uphold the law i say to the person who says oh i don't need to keep the law it's done away with if the law could have been set aside there would never have been a cross the cross of calvary proves the love of god and the mercy of God, and it proves the eternity of the law of God. 
I stand in defense of the holy law of God that a Christian will love. 